Hello and welcome to this podcast as part of the series of recordings for the Scottish Council of Global Affairs. My name is Christian Tams. I'm a professor of international law at the University of Glasgow. And today I have the ple pleasure and privilege to speak to Helen Duffy. Helen is a professor at the University of Leiden. She also runs a human rights uh, litigation firm, Human Rights and Practice, and she is also affiliated with Glasgow as a former student of the University of Glasgow and as an honorary professor here at the university. And the topic we're discussing today is human rights. And we do so for a reason. We are approaching a significant milestone for human rights and for human rights lawyers and international lawyers more generally, and that is the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was agreed 75 years ago on the 10th of December 1948. Helen, let's start with that milestone. What was that, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Well, first of all, Christian, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and to be back at the University of Glasgow, my alma mater, so it's a real pleasure. Um, and as you say, this is a significant occasion, the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, the declaration, as the name suggests, is not a binding treaty, but it is a declaration that has significant symbolic as well as practical um, importance. Um, it was the recognition uh, back in 1948 of the universal nature of human rights, the fact that every human being around the world has these inalienable human rights. Of course, if we look around the world today, we can ask ourselves whether we all really enjoy those human rights in practice, but in principle, the fact that we are all born free and equal in dignity and rights was recognised in 1948 when this declaration was adopted by the General Assembly. Uh, so maybe just to say a couple of things about its significance. I mean, one is the universality. The other thing to note about it, which is really interesting today, I think, is partly that it's quite broad in its scope. So unlike many of the treaties that followed the Universal Declaration, um, it deals with the full range of human rights, civil, political, economic, social and cultural rights. And it provides the foundation for treaties that followed, uh, many of which dealt with one aspect or another uh, of those, those human rights. And the other thing that's very telling about the Declaration today, I think, you know, I was reflecting as we look around the world at all of the horrendous armed conflicts and violations related to conflicts. But if we look back at that moment when the UN Charter and then the UN Dec uh, Declaration were adopted in the aftermath of the Second World War, we see that there was real awareness in those documents that if we don't protect human rights, we run the risk of more insecurity, war, violence. So you see that reflected in the preambles you know, that talk about avoiding, if we want to avoid recourse to rebellion and tyranny, um, we need to protect the human rights in the Declaration, you know, likewise in the UN Charter, in order to save successive generations uh, from more war and armed conflict, we need to protect human rights. But as I say, not sure we're doing a terribly good job of that, but the principle is enshrined in powerful form in the Universal Declaration. Okay, well, thanks. That's, there's a lot in there. Universality, the fact that it's it's broad in the scope of the rights that it protects, then, of course, the challenges of whether these rights mean anything in real practice, in the real lives of people. And we, I think that th those are things we can come back to. Let me perhaps pick up on one point that you mentioned, that this was the beginning of a process. And you said there was follow-up. The declaration in itself may have been a signal, perhaps not binding for the lawyers, 
but the signal for a process that would result in binding human rights. Can you tell us a bit more about that? So what happened after the 75 years ago, what happened after agreement on this declaration was reached? Yeah, so it was a foundational moment in the sense that it identified this range of rights, but it wasn't, as we said, a binding treaty. But it did provide the foundation for the development of the whole UN system of human rights, um, alongside the regional systems of human rights that developed at the same time, you know, the European Convention in the 50s, and then going on to the other regional systems, the Inter-American, the African system. Um, so it provide the basis, provided the basis for... Uh, subsequent identification of, um, or rather the subsequent codification of the rights that had been identified in the Universal Declaration. And you see that codification into binding treaties in, for example, the International Covenants on Civil and Political Rights on the one hand, on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights on the other in 1966. So there we have kind of two core binding treaties, you know, very widely ratified by states around the world that provide kind of the you know, the basis now for our binding uh, human rights legal uh, system at the international level. After that, of course, we have also seen, before and after, we've seen many specific human rights treaties dealing with particular issues, Convention Against Torture, Convention, you know, Against um, Enforced Disappearance, etc., um, that deal with specific groups or specific issues. So now we have, I think, quite a complex and rich network of treaties on the international and the regional system. And we have human rights systems of enforcement, imperfect as they are, many different types of systems of enforcement through monitoring, through reporting, uh, through individual complaints, for example, that seek to give effect to that framework. Okay, so a wide network of treaties. That's certainly something that, <clears throat> from teaching human rights in, in international law or in law classes, that's something that is immediately apparent, that it's, I mean, almost sort of a maze of human rights treaties. You work with these uh, treaties in your day-to-day -day work as a human rights practitioner and at the regional and universal levels that you've mentioned. What does that mean in practice? I presume many of our listeners are curious to find out about what that means to be a human rights litigator. Um, at the universal, at the regional, at the international level? What is your, I mean, don't give away too many secrets of your business, but what does your day-to-day -day work as a human rights litigator look like? Yeah, so, so I, th I think you sort of hit the nail on the head when you said, in a sense, what, what it's all about is trying to give effect to those binding obligations, right? We now have this system that looks great on paper, um, not only in the identification of the rights, the codification of the rights, we have these binding norms that are applicable to states around the world. Of course, we didn't talk about customary law as well as treaty. But we have a developed legal framework. Um, we also have a framework, by the way, that increasingly looks not only at human rights in isolation, but alongside other areas of the law. And this is quite important as well as a, as a development, looking at human rights and humanitarian law, both applicable and relevant in armed conflict, looking at international environmental and climate standards, for example, alongside human rights, essential to, to deal with the huge challenge of climate change that we face. But the question is, are these being given real effect? And we know that they're not. We know that there are huge challenges. Um, there's been a lot of progress, but there are huge challenges in taking these obligations seriously. And I think the way that we seek to give effect to the law is um, 
you know, it's multi-dimensional. And what I do as a human rights litigator, I have to say, is one very small part of that. I think we have to be careful not to give too much attention to the role of the courts because it is only one response among many others. But partly I think the, the role of the court is important. The role of courts generally um, is important, both national courts and the regional and international courts, as a way of holding states to account when they don't meet those obligations. Uh, so what my work entails basically is representing victims of serious violations of human rights. Um, and bringing their cases often on the regional and international level, so European Court of Human Rights, um, African Commissioner Court, Inter-American System. And by definition, these are people that have been denied um, access to a remedy on the national level. There's no remedy available for these people. They've not been able to get a political solution to their problems, which would often be preferable when you can achieve it. And therefore, as a last resort, the uh, seek support in bringing regional and international cases. So that's the, the gist of, of what, what, the, what it involves. It involves cases that are brought against states when they fail to meet these binding obligations that we've referred to. Sometimes I talk about strategic human rights litigation, but the cases that I bring are not only about providing a particular outcome for the victims and applicants in the case, but it's also about trying to use that process to bring about some kind of systemic change in a way that will then be uh, of benefit to a broader range of individuals and somehow change the human rights, human rights landscape in some kind of way. Okay, so that's, uh, I think that's, that's helpful as a clarification of the day-to-day -day work of, uh, of, of people like yourself who litigate on behalf of victims. And I think it's also important probably to see that the court cases are perhaps just the tip of the iceberg or part of the human rights work that is going on. I mean, I think in some ways, one risk that I see in, in us now talking uh, about human rights on the occasion of the 75th anniversary is that we're almost sounding like these UN brochures. I mean, you've mentioned challenges of implementation a few times, but we seem to be uh, completely sort of uh, endorsing the human rights speak. Huh? They need to be mainstreamed, they need to be seen together with climate change, they need to be seen together with armed conflict. If I talk to people from outside the human rights bubble, from outside the international law bubbles, if I talk to my parents about this, then they probably have nothing against human rights, but they sometimes wonder whether the international level of human rights protection adds anything, or whether that's just a, that's just a European thing, and outside Europe it's sort of a matter of hit and miss whether human rights matter at all. I presume you've heard those concerns a million times in your career. What do you say to people who are on the realist, cautious, skeptical end of these human rights debates? You know, that's a, a great question and I think that is the reality that we face in the world and it's a reality that we need to grapple with if we take any of this seriously. You know, a reality that there's so much scepticism about the international order. There's so much scepticism about international human rights. You know, there are allegations that human rights are applied only selectively, that, they're only, that they protect powerful, you know, that they don't actually empower those um, that need it most. Um, you know, I think there's 
there are allegations that uh, human rights are simply political tools for the powerful uh, rather than actually being binding law. I think as lawyers we can reject that and we can say you know, these are binding obligations and they're inherent rights and they're given the force of law, but the reality is there's a lot of truth to that in terms of how the law is applied. And so I think we have to acknowledge the selectivity. At the moment, you know, we look around the world, the huge selectivity um, and politicisation of human rights. It's a huge challenge and we have to confront and deal with that. I don't think the answer is to opt out and say it's not worth anything. I think the answer is to work harder to give it real effect. Um, but we have to hold states to account more consistently, even powerful states, when they engage in very serious violations. And we're seeing that around the world in mean, some of my work involving the United States, Israel, the United Kingdom, uh, among many others. You know, we have to be able to hold those states to account as well as other states. We have to be able to involve uh, to hold to account individuals from within those states as well as other states. Um, so I think there's a real challenge, but I think the answer can't be to simply opt out. I mean, it is always, it's, it's a bit trite to say it, but what's the alternative? Um, I'm not sure there's a better uh, order. And um, so I, I, I think the answer does have to be to really double down on getting real about these legal obligations that we've talked about. You know, emphasising that they're not just policy options, you know, they really are binding obligations by states. And what that means, I think, are many actors coming together to insist on more effective implementation. Uh, and uh, that's a, that is a challenge. So I'm afraid I can't entirely disagree with the sceptics. I just say that what it takes us to is to, to work harder, to work more effectively, to be more strategic, not to assume the treaties don't solve the problem. We know that. It's all about how we give effect to them, whether states insist in their relations with other states on compliance, whether human rights movements become more effective in the way that we insist on giving effect to, uh, to the law. Yeah. Okay. And I think, I mean, uh, I, mean I think that sceptical or that, that, I would say, that uh, acknowledgement of the sceptics, I think, is probably a, an important step. My sense is that for many people from within the, if I can use it flippantly again, the human rights bubble, that acknowledgement is something that they are very uncomfortable with, and perhaps that impedes meaningful discussion about the real role of human rights, as you've mentioned it. Now, you mentioned when you uh, you mentioned sort of countries, the UK, Israel, and others, um, but of course you've worked also outside those um, those frameworks, outside the European framework, outside uh, sort of major conflicts, and I was struck when preparing for this. Uh, by seeing sort of the diversity of human rights cases that you've litigated, including in Africa, for example, um, that was uh, as featured on the website of your rights and practice uh, uh, sort of uh, litigation uh, website. There's a reference to a case involving Niger, Niger and slavery. Now, Niger was much in the news now because of the coup and uh, about governmental changes there and what it means for European security. Um, but I was struck really by this case, which seemed to have made much a difference, really sort of a difference not just to the lives of the individuals that were victims, but also in a strategic sense that you've hinted at. Can you tell us a bit about your experience in litigating human rights cases in Africa? Yeah, thank you for that. Well, thank you for doing the preparation. I'm very impressed <laughs> doing the preparation for the, for the uh, interview. 
And um, yeah, so I mean, I am lucky enough to have worked across different systems, which has been a very rich experience. And I would say, you know, the three regional systems that I mentioned, African, Inter-American and European systems, are also complemented by additional um, systems and mechanisms that are also available to litigate and to complain about uh, human rights. And one of those, for example, maybe to say in the European context, an interesting example of that is, of course, the Court of Justice of the European Union, which has taken some of the, the most groundbreaking and interesting uh, litigation in relation to judicial independence issues that I work on a lot, for example. So these are not human rights-specific courts, of course, that have a very human rights-significant uh, role. Um, another type of case and that uh, type of body, and that brings me to your question, are the sub-regional systems in Africa. So there are a number of sub-regional systems that, again, like the Court of Justice of the European Union are not human rights specific but have adopted a human rights rule and one of them is the, the Court of uh, the Economic Community of West African States, the ECOWAS Court. Um, and uh, we took a case of quite a number of years now there on behalf of a really remarkable woman called Hadijatu Mani and she was a woman who was, uh, she was born into slavery basically, her mother was a slave um, and she's one of what they estimated at the time, quite conservative estimates, suggested that 43,000 people were living in slavery in Niger um, at that time. Um, and Hadijatu, curiously, it's a long story, and I'll try and be short, and you can kick me or throw something at me, because we're in the same room if I am not uh, brief on this, <laughs> but because uh, I, I do think it's such an interesting story. Um, but uh, but Hadi Jaku was sold when she was 12, right? Her mother's master sold her to a 63-year-old man and she lived a horrendous life of, of rape and uh, daily you know, abuse of various types. Um, he then said he was going to liberate her and make her his wife. And so he gave her a liberation certificate. There was a little ceremony and everything, as there was when he bought and transferred her, uh, showing how widespread and how normalised this process is. She took her liberation certificate and ran and said, thank you very much, but I don't want to marry you. I'm for the off. Uh, and uh, saw in that certificate her right to be free. You know, we talk about the Universal Declaration's reference to the inherent dignity and equality, but she needed that paper to believe that she had the right to be free, and she refused to stay with them. He then had her imprisoned for bigamy when she went off with someone else. Um, so there were a series of cases that went through the courts in Niger and for lots of reasons the courts did not provide justice and at a certain point um, the case had run through the courts, gone back, uh, was supposed to be relitigated in the domestic courts and we said no, we can't wait for this to happen. Hadi Jaku was pregnant and in prison in Niger. So we took the, court, took the case to the ECOWAS court um, against Niger for um, slavery, for failing to protect people, for failing to deal as they're obliged to with their positive obligations under human rights law. They're obliged to protect people from slavery. They're obliged to hold people to account when they violate those basic rights. All of this, by the way, is enshrined in the domestic legal order in Niger. So we see here a recurrent problem which is not the law very often, but it's the failure to give effect to the law. 
So the case went to the Equals Court and the court uh, held a hearing in Niamey in the capital, which was great. They were willing to go to Niamey to hear the case. Um, and quite promptly, within one year of having brought the case, there was a decision in Haji Jatu's uh, favour that she, of course, had the right to be free um, and that the state shared responsibility for this. I mean, the difference, how much difference do cases really make? Sometimes not a lot, if I'm honest, but sometimes they really do. And this is a good example of a, a transformative case in a number of ways. I mean, she was actually freed from prison during the proceedings. So quite often we see that cases can have an impact, maybe even before they're brought, where the spectre of the case is hovering there, very often during the process when states and others react. Um, or, of course, it can be an awful lot longer and a uh, long time after judgment. But in this case, we saw some impact during the process. The other thing that was really interesting about the case, I think, was the fact that it really shook up debate on this issue. It exposed the issue. Again, a really common contribution that I think human rights litigation can make, not in solving problems specifically, but in contributing to shaping the debate around an issue. And we really saw that in the Paddy Jaffdomani case. I remember the the night of the hearing, the NGO that was working with her, Demetria, came to our hotel um, and said, you know, we can't believe this happened. And of course they weren't talking about our amazing legal submissions or arguments. <laughs> they were talking about the fact that the issue was debated on public radio for the first time. So there was uh, recognition um, of the problem, there was a debate about it. For the first time people were saying, look, let's just acknowledge that this is happening in Niger. Um, so I think partly the, you know, what that all goes to is that it's a good example of how litigation is very often about the process, not about the outcome, at least not exclusively. That process can happen even if you don't win at the end of the day. In this case, of course, we did. It can be about, I think, empowering really powerless people. I and mean, she, in a sense, epitomises that. We talked about the problems with law being perceived as as being an instrument for the powerful, and I agree with that <laughs> to, the, to a large extent, unfortunately. But I think her case shows that that's not always the case. We have here the least powerful human being you can imagine that literally has no rights. Um, you know, when I met her, she, uh, people said she won't look you in the eye because a slave is not supposed to look a free person in the eye. You know, unbelievably disempowered. Um, but she stood up and she gave evidence and, and I think was really empowered by that process. And now I'm very pleased to say that, you know, she's living uh, with her family. I went to visit her and she's definitely it's been transformative for her life. It's been empowering for the NGOs that worked with her that were absolutely critical. And it's shaken up debate in Niger. Now, has it solved the problem? Absolutely not. But it's definitely contributed, I think, to putting people in a different position when they do advocate for an end to slavery in Niger. Well, thank you. I think that's a, that is a, a, a remarkable story of a transformation through human rights litigation or human rights discourse. And I think it's fascinating precisely because it brings home that, well, in some ways you could say that human rights in this case can make a change beneath the headlines probably, because I don't recall any of this reported in any any of the newspapers that I would regularly read, and perhaps also that they can bring change in places where the skeptics or the critics or the realists 
might not expect it to be, and that they bring change even though the general human rights situation may remain difficult, but they can bring change in discrete and yet important areas. So I think it's a, fa I, I think it's a fascinating story, and I think it's, it's, it brings all many, it has many lessons to hold for human rights uh, work more generally. Now, of course, uh, you might say that, and I think you've hinted at that very clearly, that not all is wonderful, and the 75th anniversary of the Human Rights Declaration shouldn't lead us to be pretending that in the human rights world uh, everything is great. Uh, it is certainly not. Uh, not only is there much more work to be done, but also the challenges of implementation, enforcement, and perhaps also clarification are real. So perhaps as we're nearing the end of this podcast, I would suggest we reflect on these challenges, not because we think we could, we could all resolve them in one podcast interview, but perhaps we can raise awareness for them. Um, now, clearly, at the 75th anniversary, this is, a, this is sort of an ambivalent anniversary. On the one hand, source for celebration, and perhaps we've covered some of that. Um, on the other hand, uh, cause for reflection. The cause, no doubt, endures. The hope uh, lives on for human rights protection, but we're confronted with many shortcomings, and you're confronted with them every day in your work. So if I can perhaps nudge us towards uh, these challenges in the final segment of this podcast, can I ask you what you see as the central challenges, perhaps for the next quarter century, as we're beginning to reflect from the 75th to the 100th anniversary. By 2048, the centenary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, what do you think will be, will be people talking about as the main challenges for human rights work, for human rights litigation? Yeah, thank you for that easy question. Um, there are so many. Whenever you ask a human rights lawyer about challenges, of course, um, the podcast could, could never end. But I suppose the ones that, that immediately occur to me that we absolutely need to meet. You know, there are many things we should do better and can do better, but there are some challenges that are absolutely fundamental, and it's perhaps very obvious, but I have to say, first of all, climate change, right? We have to, um, you know, completely change the way I think that we're living and the way that we're looking at that problem. We have to, um, yes, use human rights litigation as a tool which is happening on a massive level. You know, I'm involved in climate justice cases like many, many people around the world. But, you know, as, as someone wrote recently in a book, in relation to climate change, uh, the revolution will not be litigated. You know, it's about changing the way that we live our lives um, and certainly moving away from this kind of short-term narrow political view uh, to bringing about the transformation that we absolutely need, it's absolutely essential. And I think climate change is linked. The other two things that just spring in, into my mind immediately as to huge challenges right now, of course, is the problem, you know, the proliferation of armed conflicts and the fact that we are still, we're failing so much in the promise of the Universal Declaration and of the UN Charter in terms of saving successive generations, successive generations, is that it, from the uh, scourge of war, etc. Um, I think that we, you know, we absolutely need to grapple with that, but these two are related. I mean, we already see how climate change is causing greater insecurity in many parts of the world and contributing um, to armed conflicts, for example, uh, in, some, in some parts of the world. Um, but we see, of course, looking at, at Israel and Gaza at the moment, we see a real failure to hold actors to account, to insist on respect for human rights, not simply uh, you know, to mention the fact that there is law, but to get real on insisting on compliance with it. 
So I think proliferating violence and insecurity and armed conflicts, short-term approaches to that rather than long-term approaches, intersecting with climate change and inequality. Inequality is, you know, it is growing in the world and it's, I think, at the basis of so many of the other human rights problems that we see. You know, at the end of the day, almost every case I bring, and it might be on torture, it might be on immunities, it might be on climate justice, at the end of the day, most of them, almost all of them, are questions about the fundamental injustice and inequality, really, that we see around the world. Um, so I think we need to grapple with that, basically. That's, that's I, I, I have an hour to tell you how we do that, um, or are we out of time in our podcast so that I don't have time to, to have to come up with the solutions. Now, I'm being flippant, of course, about very serious issues, but there are huge challenges. I don't know the answers, but maybe one final reflection is that that I do think if we look to where answers might come from for some of these challenges, very often the solutions are going to, they're coming from people themselves, they're coming from communities and people around the world organising into civil society groups, into movements to change societies and to try to influence human rights in a real way. And one of the major challenges we see at the moment is how human rights defenders are under attack around the world. And I see this in my own work all the time. You know, lawyers that I partner with, you know, some of them have been killed. You know, people have been detained and arrested under these spurious, broad counter-terrorism laws very often, just for defending people in a certain uh, human rights. So we absolutely need to defend the defenders if we want to defend human rights going forward. Thanks, Helen. That's really been a, a sort of a long list of, of profound challenges and I think brings home the basic truth probably emerging from this discussion that the 75th anniversary is perhaps reason for celebration but perhaps more so for reflection and for continuing the work. This also brings us to the end of this podcast. To uh, return to the point made at the beginning, the reason for having this podcast now is that uh, on the 10th of December uh, we'll have reason to reflect on the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration on human rights, which is the beginning of the universal human rights movement spearheaded by the UN and reflected in many treaties uh, negotiated under the auspices of the UN and at the regional level. We've covered some of the reasons to celebrate this. Uh, we've heard about how human rights, whether in Europe or elsewhere, can make real change, can be transformative. We've also heard about the challenges that remain and remain acute as disregard and contempt for human rights continue to result in barbarous acts which outrage the conscience of mankind. And those words are not mine, but they're taken from the preamble of the, human right, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, agreed 75 years ago in 1948. It's been a privilege and a pleasure to talk about human rights and the impact 75 years after the adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights with Professor Helen Duffy, who is doing remarkable work as an academic and as a practitioner on human rights. I hope you found this podcast informative. If so, then continue to listen to the Scottish Council of Global Affairs podcast series and remain in touch with it. Uh, until the next postcards, it's goodbye from me, Christian Tams, and... Goodbye and thank you from me, Helen Duffy. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>